0: We will be in uh, the book of Judges, chapter 10. And we'll be in chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses uh, 1 through 18. And I'll bring the text up on the screen. So we're actually going to be reading all of chapter 10, but it's only 18 verses. You find our passage on page 210 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities, called Havoth-Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. Now the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you. And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mitzpah. And the, people, uh, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we've made reference in our series to the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 11, and the author, in what we like to call the Hall of Faith, uh, he cites the names of four Israelite judges. We've already covered two of them, uh, which would be uh, Barak and Gideon. And we still have two left to go. One of them being Samson, but the fourth judge, uh, his, an evaluation of his his time as a, a judge of Israel is as is difficult uh, to figure out as his name is to say. His name is Jephthah, and um, and and so, uh, but he is not named actually in this chapter. So, uh, but. Uh, this is setting the ground, laying the groundwork for Jephthah's call in chapter 11. So this it, this technically does begin, chapter 10 begins the story of Jephthah, and his, particularly his work as a deliverer. And as we see, God's people indeed need a deliverer uh, because we are not able to navigate sin in the fallen world by ourselves. And so as we turn in the midpoint of this book, uh, it it becomes readily clear that God's people need a deliverer who will not only bring about deliverance from the oppression of the enemy, but will also bring about stability through his rule. We also have a picture here of the idolatrous nature of man and also a picture of the heart of God. we're going to look at each of those tonight but first, we're going to begin with ver- the first five verses, which describe for us what we can call a peaceful interlude from the time of Abimelech. Now, admittedly, admittedly in my 1st my subpoint here, I was thinking of um, uh, bumper stickers uh, as I summarized it as, you know, you've seen that, no idolatry, no peace. <laughs> you remember those bumper stickers? Um, and so uh, we have here a summary of two judges, Tola and Jair, who judged Israel for 23 years and 22 years, respectively. So we cover 45 years in five verses. All right. And now now, uh, all that we're told really about them and what they did was that they saved Israel in some way. Uh, We are not told, though, that Israel committed any idolatry here. It would seem, then, that after the chaos of Abimelech, Israel knew about 45 years of relative peace. And now, perhaps uh, the uh, the work of Jair and Tola was simply uh, judicial, administering justice throughout the land. Maybe at some point they had to raise men to fight against a a, a, a threatening adversary that was coming coming into to battle. But seeing as the author is very ready to let us know when Israel abandons the Lord to take up new idols, uh, they um, and they will soon, as we know. Uh, the, the lack of a declaration in these verses seems to indicate a relative faithfulness over these 45 years, a faithfulness to the Lord by his people. Now, in the end, we can't be absolutely certain, um, uh, we, but we do know uh, that there is blessing from the Lord. There is blessing that can be found when, when his people walk in faithfulness to his commands. That is a, that is a wisdom saying. That is the whole idea of Proverbs, is to walk in the way of wisdom. Why? Because that's the path of blessing, right? And so, uh, and so it's as, uh, now we're not talking about perfection here, but we're talking about faithfulness, living in faith, regular repentance, seeking to conform our hearts and our actions and our lives to the uh, will of God as expressed in his word. And so as Christians, we seek specifically to follow after the example of Christ, to do what he commanded Or as the the catechism says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we see in these first five verses uh, the blessings of of a quiet faithfulness in Tola and Jair. You know, there are generations of Christian men and women who lived and died who only have their names recorded, even barely at that. Uh, And there's nothing crazy to report. There's just dates by their name. They simply followed the Lord, they honored him, and they went to afterwards to go be with their Lord and Savior. And there are certainly times of great need where great men and women have their exploits recorded in history, or as in this case we see in Scripture. But let us be content to live as the Apostle Paul instructs us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where he tells us that we need to pray for our rulers so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, he says, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Yet for all this, this goodness here in these five verses, we do have some possible signs of a storm on the horizon. We're told that Jair had 30 sons. I feel like I'm starting a, a, um, you know, one of those kind of puzzles those little word puzzles that you can give to people, all right, so uh, a man had thirty sons and his thirty sons rode on thirty donkeys, and they had thirty you know uh, um, but but he had thirty sons, which implies that he had thirty wives or or at least multiple wives. You would hope that was split up between multiple wives um, but uh, but he had thirty sons, and we saw how gideon 's seventy sons ended and and so Jair also as seemed to. The fact that they control thirty cities, Jair seems to have been some kind of regional power uh, and so I, and now i don 't think we're meant to attribute specific malice or or you know n- 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 um, directly bad things to jair here um it, we well, I think it is right for us to start to kind of step back and get a little bit wary it's kind of like when you know David goes and he deals with um, uh, uh, he deals with uh, um Naboth was it Naboth the fool um and uh um and he and he kills over dead and he he marries Abigail who's the you know this wonderful wise woman and then you're like oh it's such a great end of the story and at the end of the chapter he said and oh here's the other eight women that David married (laughs) and you're just like wait a minute Wait a minute, this was a great story until the very end, right? And then, and then all of a sudden, it's kind of like this warning, you know, this kind of like all of a sudden there's something not all right in David's world, you know. So that's what it feels like. Things are good, but there's something maybe not quite right here going on. But at, at the very least, we have a reprieve uh, for Israel here from all the craziness of Abimelech. And we have largely 45 years of peace uh, for the people and for at least for Jair, uh, a, a time of uh, prestige and prosperity, but these good things come to an end as we are presented in verses 6 through 9 with a view into the idolatrous nature of man. And, uh, you know, if earlier we said, you know, um, you, know, no, you know, no idolatry, then no peace, then here we'd say, if you know idolatry, <laughs> you're not going to have peace, right? So, uh, well, and this is really, uh, what I highlight here is the danger of getting comfortable in. Uh, uh, because I think it's, uh, there's, there's a concern here that we need to have. Because in this time of calm, people seem to get comfortable. They seem to get very comfortable, in fact, with the surrounding culture, with the surrounding religions of the nations. And what we're told here is that their turn to idolatry is not merely like they did before, with turning to the Baals and the of, of the, of the of the Canaanites. But uh, here we have an explosion, an idolatrous expansion. Um, indeed, uh, seven times uh, uh, gods are cited here. And now, gods were often associated with a particular people and land. And so, Baal and Ashtaroth uh, for the Canaanites, plus the gods of Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and the Philistines. And I want you to, I'm going to pull up the map here. and And if you look at that, okay, so... So these are so these are all the extra gods. So uh, you've got it in yellow there. You know you have to the to the north you have the far north you have Syria in the red. But then you right above that you have the city right there Sidon, which is in the very north. Then you have then you have to the east Ammon and to the southeast Moab and to the southwest Philistia. Um, And so basically they're pulling gods from everywhere they can. They're worshiping gods all around them. And the basic idea is that these, these gods are gods of the lands uh, um, that belong to the peoples there. And so if you get on the good side of these gods, well, then you got it made in the shade. All right. Because if, if you're good with the gods of Sidon, Ammon, Moab, and Syria, well, then you got, you got peace in your time. And so... Uh, but this requires a form of syncretism that just mixes the gods all together and, and, and this, this kind of mad dash to, um, it, and it, to make whichever god you think is unhappy with you happy again. And we have to be careful that uh, in uh, in times of prosperity and peace, to not let ourselves get comfortable and to let our guard down to our own even surrounding culture we, the scriptures tell us that the devil prowls around with the roaring lion that's seeking someone to devour, that our own hearts are desperately wicked, and that Calvin co- says that the hearts are in a, an idol factory, constantly producing new ones, one right after the other. And so if life, if life gets comfortable for a while, then we will be tempted not br- merely to bring in one idol, but to bring in many idols. Now for us, idols are not statues, but they are things, people even, who we place at the same level uh, of affection as we do God, or even above God, in terms of their importance and value to us. And, if God, and, and the way to test that, and I've shared this together, this from Tim Keller, but, uh, but the way to test that is, you know, it, it, it's what is the thing that a God could take from you, that you would shake your fist at him and curse his name. If, that is, if there is something there, that is an idol. That is our idol. And so, as again, as Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. And if we're not careful, if we let our guard down in even times of prosperity and peace, then the idol factory will get thrown into full production. And, uh, and, and that matters because we serve the God who will not be mocked. Right? We serve the God who will not be mocked. God basically says to the people there, he says, look, you want to serve the gods of the Philistines and the Ammonites? Okay, sure. Why don't you serve the people as well? And in his anger, he sells his people into the hands of of the Philistines and the Ammonites for 18 years. 18 years. And notice, when we get to that, we'll get to it later. Notice that it takes 18 years for them to repent. 18 years of oppression before they finally realize we need to turn back to the Lord. That's commitment, for one thing. But in the the end, in the end, idolatry results in spiritual oppression and physical consequences because idols do not have a neutral effect in our lives the Israelites abandoned their God to serve these idols because they thought it was the pathway to safety. They thought it was the pathway to life. Instead, idolatry has become the pathway of ruin and hardship. And again, these, 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 these religions were kind of just, they're kind of figured out as you go, religions. So like, if you're serving, you're serving, let's say, Baal and Ashtaroth, the, the Canaanite gods, and, you're, and, so, um, and you, don't get the, you don't get the crop you need. You don't get the rain that you need in a particular season. We're getting the rain we need right now. But, uh, but you're not getting the rain you need in that particular season. Um, and so um, and so what you're like, okay, well, some, for some reason, Baal is unhappy. So I've got to go figure out what that is. And so you go make a sacrifice. And then still not enough rain. Okay? And you're like, okay, well, he must still be unhappy. Okay, well, I, I'm going to go offer something even more valuable, right? And the most valuable thing you could go sacrifice was your eldest uh, child, all right? And so, uh, and so, th- do that. Now, take that. That's just Baal. Multiply that. The god, of, the god of si- the Sidons, the the, the god of Mo- the gods of Moab. The god- you know, I mean, think about that, and think about how insane that must be to figure out which god is mad at me, right? <laughs> Which one is mad at me? And all of a sudden, you know, trying to figure out what it is. And and there's a parallel there, I think, to even the the idols that we may get into in the modern life, which, again, are not statues. But these things that we think apart from God are going to give us life, but they're not doing it. And so I'm just going to oh, I just got to put more money in the 401k and then I'll feel safe and secure. I just gotta, you know what? I just gotta fix up this one thing on the house. It's gonna cost a lot of money, but I'm gonna fix up this one thing on the house, and then I'll feel secure, right? I'll just get, you know what? I just if I just get this car, all right? There's no way, good way to end that sentence, right? <laughs> but I mean, like, but if I just get this car, then 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 I'll then I'll feel better. Like it just whatever it is, but if I can just get this one relationship, I'll get this one person to say the thing I want them to to to, he- to hear from them, then then I'll feel secure. You know, it's like it's. And so, and you're, and it's similar, just making gods out of all these things, running around trying to, and it's a desperate move, right? And it's, and it's, and it's damaging. As GK Beale wrote, we become like the things we worship. We become as spiritually dead or alive as the thing we worship. And so he writes in his book, we become what we worship either to our ruin or our restoration. And so, um, and and God will not be mocked, even even if his people today in his own church turn from him, even if we give him lip service while we chase after our own modern idols, uh, uh, resulting in suffering and loss, God will not be mocked, and he will call us to account. And so this, and, and so we have this view into the idolatrous nature of man that even in time of blessing, we can go crazy with idolatry. Um, uh, But this also, this, this chapter gives us a view into the heart of God in verses 10 through 18. And what we see in the first five verses here, verses 10 through 15, is that God is not fooled by cheap repentance. God is not fooled by cheap repentance. The people come back, finally, after 18 years, they come back and they say they have sinned against the Lord. But God reminds them, and now bear in mind, think about that. That's 18 years of them trying to figure out which God's mad at them. 18 years of giving sacrifices of who knows what to these gods. And finally figuring out that it doesn't work and that, uh, and that, the, and that they need to turn back to the Lord. Now we're grateful that they, uh, that, they come, that they do that. We're grateful that they turn back to the Lord. But 18 years are lost. The people come back, and God reminds them that not only have they sinned against him in their idolatry, but they have sinned against his mercy. He reminds them how he delivered them from the Egyptians and, from, and their enemies, even outside of Egypt. And now they have turned to their former oppressors. He says, I saved you from the Philistines. I saved you from the Ammonites. I saved you from them. And now you've turned to their gods. And so he makes it absolutely clear that they have no right to claim any kind of deliverance from him. He says, I'm not going to save you anymore. In fact, he says, since they want to worship those other gods so badly, he says, go cry out to them to save you. uh, And and quit crying to me every time you get in trouble. All right. And so we need to be reminded here that God is not fooled by cheap repentance, God is not impressed by, as one commentator said, by crocodile tears. He is not impressed by the depths of our emotions when we are deeply unhappy about the consequences our sins have brought upon us in our lives. I really am not enjoying this right now, Lord. He's like, yeah, I bet you're not, right? But the people respond, and their response is important. Because first, they go back and they confess again. And they confess plainly that they have sinned against the Lord. They submit themselves completely to the Lord. Telling telling him, do whatever you want to us, Lord. But just save us. We can't save ourselves. Only you can save us. And then they do something very important that they hadn't done yet. They put away their idols. And they begin to serve the Lord again. So before they were calling out to the Lord, saying, "Lord, we've repented, we've sinned, you know, we did we did wrong," but they still hadn't put their idols away, right? And so, and so we learn a few things here. First, we learn that we must confess our faults and sins, uh, and especially idolatrous acts for what they are, they're sin. You know, they didn't go to the Lord and say, "Lord, we slipped up," "Lord, we had a little little oopsie," right? Like, we know, we have sinned. We have trespass. We have violations of the holy standard and character of God and his word. And we ought to confess, especially as Christians, how we have sinned against the mercy of God, how we have sought after the, the pleasures of the world because we found God wanting in some way. And second, once we've done that, We need to put away our idols and serve the Lord. This is the very definition of reformation. Matthew Henry called this uh, reformation. It's to reform, to recover that which was lost, to begin again what was stopped. So to stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. That is reformation. And so true repentance requires reformation where we turn not only in our hearts and our words but in our actions and our lives, and to, once again, to put away our idols, and then to serve and worship the Lord. And, uh, and so, um, it, it, but we, as we do that, we need to be very clear that God, to know that God's compassion is not based upon us. In verses 16 to 18, we see this. Because the mistake we can make here is to think that God changes his mind because Israel finally got their repentance right. He's like, okay, I'm waiting to get, I'm waiting to respond, but I'm waiting. Israel hadn't got quite right yet, so I'm going to wait. Repentance is necessary, and this is where I think multiple things are happening at once. For one thing, because God is God, and he does more than one thing at one time, right? Um, But repentance is necessary, but it is not the work that we put into our repentance that get God's attention, that gets his attention or changes his mind. It is not as if we do something and then God, because of us and our deep sorrow and sadness and our repentance is moved to compassion because we really mean it this time. Rather, it is simply because of God's heart and his love for his people. He did not turn and deliver his people because of their repentance. It doesn't say that in Judges. It says that after they began to serve him, he looked at their misery and he became impatient. He could, other translations say he could bear it no longer. But what we see also at the end of this chapter is that repentance is it's not only not based on us, but repentance needs a deliverer to be effective. For God's compassion to come into the lives of Israel, they still need to be delivered. From their oppression. The people have repented. But, and God is indicating that he's accepting their repentance. But they are still being oppressed by the Philistines and the Ammonites. So the question at the end of the chapter is who will rise to defend God's people now? And we look at the New Testament and we, and we see that it was not the, the willingness of the Jews to receive uh, the baptism of repentance that John offered that moved God to send Jesus into the world. What moved him was certainly the glory uh, that he would receive because of his mercy, according to his plan, but it was the darkness in the world that needed the light to come and to shine into it, that he would redeem for himself out of his own compassion and love a people for his own possession. He determined that he would d- deliver his people not only from Roman oppression but from the oppression of sin and death itself, the oppression of the devil, the oppression of the flesh and corruption. We could be as repentant as the day is long, but without a deliverer, we would still be crushed by the enemy. And so I think this section offers us very practical wisdom when we're dealing with our own sin. We need to confess our sins to the Lord for what they are. But to truly repent of them, we need to take steps to put them away. To put away our idols and, uh, in our, and sinful habits, commitments, things that we've, uh, we've been long, for too long made excuses for. Even Jesus says in the Gospels that we ought to cut off our offending limbs. To gouge out offending eyes. Hyperbole, to be sure, is one... The first Christian apologist, unfortunately, found out after he castrated himself, but that really happened, and he said he regretted it afterwards, and I'm like, I'm sure you did. So, uh, but, uh, but but Jesus uses hyperbole there to reveal to us the horror of sin and the serious actions that we must be willing to take in order to root out. Uh, root out uh, sin in our life i mean look this many years from now we chuckle at that christian apologist who did that to himself uh it was origin um who, who did that to himself um uh, but at the same time you're like that guy took sin seriously <laughs> he took sin seriously and we laugh at that but there are people are who going like well i can't cancel my netflix account <laughs> like what if there's something on there that i want to watch you know, and it's like, okay, no one's asking to literally cut off a limb, but what are we prepared to do? What are we actually willing to do in order to fight sin in our own lives and to put those idols away? First, we've got to identify what our idols are and then determine what we will do with them. But even in all of that, we must not think that God loves us more or less because of how we struggle or fail with sin. We must not think that God loves us because of the purity of our repentance or the sincerity of it, the depth of it. He loves us simply because he does, because he determines in his own heart to love us, because he has set his affection upon us and has covered us with the blessed righteousness of his Son, Why does God love me? Why does God love you? Because He wants to. That's why. And so let us take caution then, in times of blessing and prosperity, that we would not fall into arrogance and sin and idolatry as Israel does here. But even if we do, let us humble ourselves and repent, put away our idols and serve the Lord, but always let us look to the one who makes repentance possible, who makes our faith saving, our righteous deliverer, the one who, as they said at the end of the chapter, who fights for us, who delivers us, who is the very head of his people, the church, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That it is not because of our faithfulness that you keep us, that you forgive us, but it is because of your own compassion and goodness and love. Yet at the same time, Lord, we acknowledge the necessity of repentance. And Lord, we often and we confess that we are often too slow to repent, and that our repentance is often lacking. Uh, in, in reformation. And so, Lord, we pray, Father, that indeed our repentance would be made full when we sin, that we would seek to amend our ways, amend the opportunities and access to sin, to to, to cut off, to make those big gestures at times uh, to uh, to fight against sin and to prevent us from sinning against you. But, Lord, we pray. We praise you because uh, your, your love and your compassion, your determination to deliver us, to, to save us, is not dependent upon us. It's not dependent upon the, the goodness of our repentance. It is dependent upon your goodness and your love. And for that, we give you praise. And so, Lord, we do pray for times of prosperity and peace in our country, in our lives. Yet even so, Father, we pray, that we would be on the watch, on the watch for the for the sinfulness, the idolatry that rises up in our own hearts, in our own flesh, and tempts us away from you. Lord, help to us to keep our eyes upon our Savior and to run the race with perseverance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.